You're listening to To Dine for the Podcast, the Shot Put Media production, presented by MasterCard. Start something priceless. What's better in life than a bottle of wine, great food, and an amazing conversation? My name is Kate Sullivan, and I am the host of To Dine For. I'm a journalist, a foodie, a traveler with an appetite for the stories of people who are hungry for more. Dreamers, visionaries, artists, those who hustle hard in the direction they love. I travel with them to their favorite restaurant to hear how they did it. This show is a toast to them and their American dream. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Terlato Wine Group. American National Insurance, and Spiritless. As the weather turns colder and you're looking for a truly delicious glass of red, I have an idea for you. Chimney Rock. Most everyone knows Napa makes world-class wine, but not everyone knows that within the Napa Valley lies a very small but very special subregion called Stag's Leap District. It's home to Chimney Rock Winery. This winery specializes in Cabernet that is truly delicious. The wine is filled with beautiful layers of complexity and finishes with a velvety texture that Chimney Rock is known for. This is a wonderful option for gift-giving and a perfect option to bring to a special dinner party. Cheers, everyone. To Dine For the podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. For 115 years, American National has remained committed to helping people and communities make a real difference in their lives. American National supports great local community organizations led by the kind of people you hear about on To Dine For, people who are inspired to make a difference and inspire others in return. American National's philosophy is helping where it's needed helps us all. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write, and the states in which they're licensed, Visit AmericanNational.com slash dine. Before we get to the podcast, I want to share the story of three young women who are carving their own path in the beverage industry. They started a company called Spiritless. Their first product is called Kentucky 74, and it's a non-alcoholic bourbon. You can use it as the base for so many delicious mocktails or drink it by itself on the rocks. What I like to do is go halvesies, meaning you mix it with a foolproof bourbon to lower the ABV in your cocktail. I put a little honey, cinnamon, and an orange slice, and it is truly delicious. If you'd like to enjoy an evening cocktail with no guilt, you can use promo code to dine for to get free shipping. Welcome to To Dine For The Podcast, where we meet the world's most innovative and creative minds at their favorite restaurant. On today's episode is Steven Starr. I don't like feeling that it's easy. and It feels easier for me. And I don't like that feeling because if you think things are too easy, then I don't think they'll come out right. Steven Starr is an American restaurateur and former entertainment promoter based in Philly. He owns the Star Restaurants Group, which operates over 30 restaurants. He has restaurants in many different areas of the U.S. as well as overseas. These restaurants include Alma de Cuba, Barclay Prime, Budokan, Butcher and Singer, the Continental Midtown, the Dandelion, El Rey, and on and on and on. Star won the 2017 Outstanding Restaurateur Award from the James Beard Foundation, as well as the Best New Restaurant by the James Beard Foundation for the restaurant Le Cuckoo. 
Star is known for creating complete environments with an artistic, almost cerebral approach. In 2017, the magazine Restaurant Hospitality placed Stephen Star on their RH25 most powerful multi-concept operators in the U.S. Stephen Star is a legend in the restaurant business, and I can't wait to hear his journey. Please enjoy my interview with Stephen Star. Hi, Stephen. How are you? Good. Great. So first of all, thank you so much for joining me on To Dime For The Podcast. Um, I am absolutely fascinated by your career and fascinated by your journey. But I'm going to begin this podcast the way I begin all my podcasts. And it's an especially difficult question for you, uh, given your background and expertise. But what is your favorite restaurant? And if you could take me to just one that really speaks to who you are, being born in Philly and growing up in New Jersey, and literally living a life all over the world, where would it be? So I think my favorite restaurant is the restaurant that I grew up with in uh, South Philadelphia, which is like the Brooklyn of Philly, sort of an Italian uh, neighborhood. And the restaurant was called Villa de Roma. It's still there. Villa de Roma. Villa de Roma. And why do you love it? I had many, many family dinners there, office parties, celebrations. And it's just a very homey, cozy, non-pretentious restaurant with great Italian-American food. So if I was going to have my last meal, <laughs> I'd be there. Okay, that's fantastic. Well, that says a lot. That says a lot, Stephen, because you've, you've created these absolutely stunning restaurants all over the world. And at the end of the day, we gravitate towards what we love and what brings us comfort, don't we? Yeah, because even during COVID, we found that the restaurants that prospered during and uh, right after it was allegedly over were the old standards, the comfort mm. of restaurants. You look at a restaurant like Balthazar. Yes. When it finally reopened, it's doing more business now than it's ever done in its history. And there's something to be said about that. And what do you think that is? Is it the mem- muscle memory we have of great restaurants that, that evoke a feeling? I think it's the, that muscle memory and the, the feeling that you remember. But I also think that subconsciously, you, you say to yourself, forget trendy, forget the hot new thing. Let me go back to something that's just good mm-hmm. and make me feel good. It doesn't have to be the hottest new restaurant anymore, at least for now. Mm-hmm. You just want to feel safe. Yes, you want to feel safe, especially in these times. Well, take me back to the very beginning of your career. Uh, you were both in nightclubs and restaurants. How did it all begin? Well, I was in the music business first. I was a concert promoter for many years, you know, doing club acts and and big performers. So I did a lot of food in my clubs. The first club I had was a comedy club. Really? Yes. Where I booked, you know, Jerry Seinfeld. Oh, my gosh. Larry David. But I had food with it and I had no idea what I was doing. So that was the beginning of my food experience. Later on, I eventually sold my concert business to uh, my competitor and really had nothing else to do. I didn't know what to do. And there was a big void in Philadelphia. There were restaurants, of course, but they were pretty boring. Mm. So I just wanted to do something a little exciting, a little different. And I stumbled upon this diner uh, in Old City. And uh, I converted it into a uh, martini bar, which at the time was something that no one had ever had seen. And I was inspired by a couple of places in New York and California who had started it. And that's how it began. It was really just to have something to do 
while I figured out what I was going to do. What did you study at Temple? I know you went to Temple University. What, what, when you were in college, did, is this the path you wanted to take, or did you think you'd be in the hospitality business? No, I studied film and, and my, minored in theater. So I wanted to make movies and television shows. That's what mm. I really wanted to do. Mm. So in the end, I'm a frustrated filmmaker, maybe. <laughs> the restaurants are just what I was able to do. You know, there's sort of like little theatrical productions. Restaurants are theater. Restaurants are most definitely theater, I think. Yeah. Take me back to that diner slash martini bar. How did that restaurant do from a financial standpoint, meaning was it successful? And B, what did you learn from that first experience? That restaurant was so successful. I had no idea. You know, really? what, I, what I did learn from my concert business is that you put the tickets on sale and within five minutes, you know if it's a hit. Hmm. So to me, when you open a restaurant, if it's not boom, it's a failure. Wow. That's not totally true anymore. But so I, I opened the restaurant, the Continental, and the day it opened, there were lines around the block to get in. And I knew it was like, it was like putting Madonna, you know, on sale. Right. It was sold out the first day. It was a sure thing. And that was the theory that I operated uh, by for years. You open it. If it's really going to be a hit, it's immediate. But then I hit restaurant number six and it wasn't an immediate hit. It sold like 70% of the season. And it took time for that restaurant to, to build. So it's not always an immediate success, but I strive for that. I strive to have an overnight sort of success. When you saw those lines around the corner out of the Continental and you, you knew that it, this, you were onto something, what, what, what do you think that said to you? Like, was that filling a need that maybe fill the Philadelphia clientele and customer was hungry for something different, for something maybe more elevated and elegant. And I don't want to put words in your mouth. So please tell me, what do you, when you saw that success out of the Continental, what did that say to you? Well, one, I thought I was a genius. <laughs> I'm just joking. Two, I knew I hit, I hit, I struck a nerve, but I kind of, the day that we finished the restaurant, and I walked across the street with the guy that helped me design it. And we put the lights on and we looked into it. I knew I got chills. I knew it was a smash. I could tell. Wow. And what it was is that we, we gave the city something it didn't have. And really what it was, was some theater. it was theater. Mm-hmm. And it was young. It was, it was for young people. It wasn't for our parents' restaurant. Mm-hmm. Just was an immediate hit. And I knew if I, I assumed, I didn't know, that if I did this again with something else, different concept, that maybe it could happen again. Lightning could strike twice. When you look at a restaurant like Budokan in New York City, which is iconic, not only for the food, but for the location, for the for, for people who have never been, who are listening, who have never been to Budokan, it is a restaurant from the outside that you would never expect because it's a, it's a dark door. You walk in and it is just this stunning multi-level restaurant that is the lighting of it, the ambiance, the size of it, the energy of it is really like one of a kind. Can you talk me through a little bit of the process of creating that specific restaurant? Because I know I'm sure you two consider it iconic in your portfolio. Yeah. I mean, that restaurant, I, when I came to New York to do restaurants, it was scary because even though I was very successful in Philly, you know, the notion was that, you know, it was a small, small fish in a big pond. Mm-hmm. And 
well, it was like this little sleepy town and I kind of, that's what people thought. And I thought maybe, you know, I, I'll hit a wall in New York because the coolest stuff's in New York. How could I possibly be better than the rest? Of so I enlisted like the best designers I could find. I, for Budokan, was a French designer, Christian Viagra. And for Morimoto, which was another restaurant, mm-hmm. uh, away, it was uh, Tada Ando, who was a Pritzker award-winning architect. And Christian asked me, what, what do you want it to feel like? And I said, his stuff is generally very reserved and subtle, beautiful, but subtle. And I said, I want, picture yourself taking a tab of acid, LSD, and just design, go crazy. And he laughed. <laughs> and when he came back, it still was, still was very, very subtle, and, but not so reserved. It was sort of out of control. And the narrative that he created, which was this Asian billionaire, his home in, in France, and what, it would, what would it look like? And it incorporated French design and Asian aesthetics. And he put it together, and it turned out to be, you know, again, I make analogies to music all the time because of my history. To me, forgive me for being so uh, pompous, it was my Sergeant Pepper. Mm. I was the pinnacle of what I thought I could achieve. Because it's, it's spectacular. The, the look of that restaurant is just breathtaking. It is. I, and not, and I, I'm not too, if you, if you feel you're being pompous, I don't mean to feed into that, but it really is. It truly is a stunning, stunning restaurant and it's one of a kind. We'll have more on this conversation in just a minute, but first, thank you to our sponsors. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. If you're like me, there are times when you want to feel like you're having a fancy cocktail but you don't actually want the alcohol. So I love Kentucky 74 from Spiritless. It's a distilled, non-alcoholic spirit for your favorite bourbon cocktails, but with just 15 calories per serving and none of the guilt. You can pre-order your bottle today at spiritless.com. Use the promo code TODINEFOR to get free shipping. To Dine For the podcast is brought to you by American National offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. There's a funny thing about most insurance commercials, whether they feature lizards or birds or funny cartoon characters. It seems like they want you to think about anything but insurance. American National, on the other hand, has real local agents who get to know you, so they can help you reach better decisions about your insurance to make sure you're protecting what matters most to you. American National agents are part of your community. They're your neighbors. 
So whether it's solutions for your home, your small business, your farm, or your life, you can count on your local American National Agent to make sure you get the discounts you deserve and the protection you need without paying for extras you don't. With American National, you get an ally, not just a web page. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write in the states in which they're licensed, visit AmericanNational.com dine. As the weather turns colder and you're looking for a truly delicious glass of red, I have an idea for you. Chimney Rock. Most everyone knows Napa makes world-class wine, but not everyone knows that within the Napa Valley lies a very small but very special subregion called Stag's Leap District. It's home to Chimney Rock Winery. This winery specializes in Cabernet that is truly delicious. The wine is filled with beautiful layers of complexity and finishes with a velvety texture that Chimney Rock is known for. This is a wonderful option for gift-giving and a perfect option to bring to a special dinner party. Cheers, everyone. Now back to our conversation. Let's back up two steps. When you are beginning, when you have the space in mind, do you start with the designer? Do you start with the chef? Do you start with the space? Where do you begin with the inspiration of a restaurant? Space is always the king. I, I look at the space, and if that is compelling, then I try and figure out what would go in that space. At that point, I think one of the talents I have is to pick the right designer for that concept. In this case, I actually met with Philippe Stark first, mm. brought him into the space. He loved it, but he, you know, there was a balcony that was sort of in there, mezzanine, mm-hmm. and had this wacky idea of eliminating the mezzanine, mm. just having one space. So it was a cool idea, but it was financially, it was a disaster because I needed those extra seats. Sure. It didn't work out. And luckily, Christian understood what I wanted. And again, he had a, even though the, the space is spectacular, it has a uh, refinement to it, which I think really would have been maybe a little too over the top. So this is really interesting. We, you know, I asked, like, how do you begin with the restaurant concept? You said for you personally, you start with the space, then you bring in the designer. We haven't even talked about the food or the chef. So if you're telling me that the food is really tertiary in this story. Well, the space is first. And then I say, well, what kind of concept would go in that space? Oh, this feels Asian. or This feels Middle Eastern. Mm-hmm. That, the, so the concept is second. It doesn't mean the food is last. but once you have the concept, then you have the food. And the food, once I hone in on the food, we go crazy trying to make it fantastic. Mm-hmm. You know? But I could put Budokan's food in an unassuming space, you know, with mediocre lighting, and you won't like it as much. Isn't that interesting? Well, that says that says so much. So when when Budokan, you know how you mentioned that you always know instantly when when at least in the first the, ver- the very beginning if something's going to be a hit. What was that? What were the early days of Budokan like? Budokan in New York when I opened it, I was nervous, not really understanding is this going to work. But when Christian and his team brought in the the mood board and the board showed me all the, the layouts, the material, the chairs. There's this one uh, showcase piece that has stuffed exotic birds. Mm-hmm. They showed me all these different elements. When I saw these elements put together, I literally cried. Did you? Yes, because I saw it and I said, this is unbelievable. Never felt this before. I got emotional, like with tears, looking at a design before it was actually done. And when I saw that, I knew it was done. It was over. It was going to be smashed. But I had to make it good, right? 
Well, it's it's really interesting, and and maybe not everyone will be able to follow me on this, but. I feel like, you know, when, when you think back to, you know, going to Temple and wanting to get into Hollywood and wanting to be in the movie industry and direct, and I feel like you channeled that exact emotion of creating a film by creating specifically Budokan, but restaurants in general, because really it's about hovering over it from a big picture standpoint and seeing, is it is it going to work? And that moment when you saw that mood board was was equivalent to a director taking a look at what was in front of him and, and is this movie going to really play? It really was, it really was just exactly like that, yes. And I also remember Steven Spielberg came to the restaurant one night to eat and he sat down and I said hello and I sat with him for you know, 10 minutes. And he said something that I was the best compliment I've ever received. And he said, you know, walking in here down those steps, I felt like I was in a movie. Mm. So I... That was it for me. No one, yeah. could, no other compliment anyone could give me. Right. Absolutely. And of course, it has been in, in television shows and movies and obviously a star and sex in the city. When you have a massive success like you do with Budokan, is there the temptation to want to recreate it in a different form because you know it'll be successful? Or are you constantly thinking, I got to do something totally different? No, what it is, it's again, back to the Beatles. <laughs> The next album's got to be better, mm. more significant in, in a way. But it's hard to top that. Yes. How do you top Budokan? I think I did, I didn't top it. I think Le Cuckoo maybe was close in a different way. Right. It was smaller. Yeah. And then it was also nominated for James Beard for the best new restaurant, correct? It won. It won. That's right. So yeah, Le Cuckoo, I think I came close. But everyone I open now, I feel like I have to outdo them. What do you think made Le Cuckoo so unique? Part of this, I, actually, it's going to sound corny. Part of it, like magic. That happened at Budokan. Well, I had a genius designer. And it happened. And I, and I had something to do with that because I pushed him in a certain direction. And at Le Cuckoo, I believe it was like God, magic, great designer, brilliant, genius designers. But something happened because those same designers do other things that don't always end up like what we have. Would you say, listening to you, would you say one of your talents is assembling a team of truly gifted people to do their thing? Yes, and the executive producer, yes. You pick the writer and you kind of help with the script yourself and you get all the right part. Yes, that's, that is the single probably best thing that I do. Okay, so let me ask you this. Why do you think other restaurateurs don't follow your model of getting the best designer, getting the best space? Is it money? Are they cutting corners? Do they not have the vision? What do you think differentiates you? I think many of those things you just said. Luckily for me, they don't have the vision. Mm -hmm. They don't have the sense. It's terrible to say it this way, but they don't have the sense of taste and style that I think I have. They may know a lot about the food and the chefs and all this, but they don't get it. They think hire that designer. He he or she's done all those places. He's great, mm-hmm. and then they don't and they don't understand or respect how important it is for lighting. I have more of a reverence for designers than I think any other restaurateur I know. I mean, they're I I hold them in great esteem. Similar reverence, maybe a little more than a great chef. Mm. 
because a truly great chef, there's something just beautiful. It's a beautiful yes. thing. And a, a truly art, a great artist bring you to your knees. You just they are blown away with what they do. So I think most restaurateurs are sort of, they're restaurant guys. I wasn't a restaurant guy. And you're not a restaurant guy now, even though you're known as one of the most famous restaurant guys. You're, you're, you really are in a class by yourself. Thank you very much for that. But yeah. I, I am a restaurant guy because of all the restaurants I have. I understand things intuitively now. But I don't, yeah, you're right. I don't feel like I am. That's not the first thing that I am. Right. So let's talk about food, service, and hospitality. How much, are you hiring people to be a part of that section? Or are you hands-on in, the, in terms of the menu, the feel, and the emotion of the hospitality? So for a guy that's not supposedly a restaurant guy, I'm so hands-on in terms of the food. And I have learned that even the best, best chefs need someone there, an editor, someone to comment. And I think I've gotten really good at this. I think my palate, mainly my memory is very strong. So I'll eat something at a tasting and then restaurant will open and six months later, I'll eat that dish and I'll say, this is not the same. Mm. And I have to figure out what it is that was different. So I am very involved in the food, very involved in the, in the best chefs that we have. I was extremely involved. Sometimes they get upset with me because I'm so, <laughs> but, and I respect, you know, I respect them. I do it respectfully, but I, every, every chef needs an editor, no matter how good he or she is. Um, when it comes to creating, you know, the best restaurants create an experience and whether it's the restaurant you mentioned at the very beginning of this conversation that, that gave you a certain emotion, a feeling and delicious food, certainly that has to be part of your MO when you're creating a restaurant. What emotion do you want to create? What feeling? And then letting everything happen. Let's talk a little bit about hospitality now, right now in 2022. How do you think it's changed post-COVID? I'm going to say it's not as good for, for several reasons. One, we don't have enough people, mm -hmm. enough people to cover the tables and the right. square footage. The staffs have been beat up for over two years and will go out of their way to an extent for the customer, but they're not, the mindset is I'm not kissing their ass. I right. just went COVID for two years. My uncle died of this thing. I lost my dog, you know, this, this thing. And it's understandable. It is. And the customers do understand it. They do understand it for a while, but I think now people are kind of demanding a better attitude. And we're trying to slowly, you know, nurture the staff to, and, and make them feel better. But we need people. You know, you can't. It's hard to do full house when you don't have enough servers. Yeah. No, you bring up a great point. I think there's the expression that you can only pour from a full cup, not an empty cup. I think people on both sides, both the guests and also the staff are dealing with empty cups, right? So how can you pour your own, your own self if your cup is empty? And so I think, you know, you're dealing with people who are really at their wits end in a lot of respects. I agree. So knowing that, how has your sense of what's possible, what you'd like to create, what's next for you, has the pandemic affected uh, your creativity and what you want to build next? Well, you know what? It had a weird effect on me because it's heavy. It's a little manic effect. I, mean, I think I need to 
have some therapy to get over what I'm going through. It mm. had the opposite effect. So COVID hit and all I wanted to do was like open more restaurants. <laughs> so in other words, most people would say, let's lay back, let's take it easy. Right. It happened, the same thing happened during the financial crisis in 2008. Yeah. I said, I'm opening more. We'll just make them smaller. Yes. And cheaper. But you got to be careful because uh, you don't want to get too ag- aggressive with that. So I've, I've signed like seven leases. Have you really? Are they yeah. in New York, Philly? Can you share that? They're in Philadelphia. There's three in Washington, mm. and one in Miami. And there's, and there's three others that aren't quite signed. Yet. So, yeah, and I'm looking in New York. I want to do something in New York, but I'm going to do something very, very meaningful in New York. Big, not necessarily in size, but impact. So I'm waiting for the right space. Is there a space, is there a restaurant that inspires you? Is there a place that, from a visual design perspective, you have said, wow, this is really special? Um, I think that um, the things over the years that inspired me was first and foremost the the hotel, my Ian Schrager's hotel in Miami, the mm-hmm. Dellum. Mm-hmm. That lobby. Yes. Like, I, I never, I still think it's like one of the most incredible experiences walking in there. Yes. And then the, the coffee shop in, in New York City, mm-hmm. there, which is not there anymore. Mm-hmm. I thought that so the coffee shop and the Delano were two designs. One is a restaurant, one is a hotel lobby that had the biggest impact on me as I became a restaurateur and what I wanted to do. The coffee shop actually was somewhat inspirational in the Continental, the first Continental. It didn't look like it exactly, but there were elements of it that definitely I connected. How have you personally changed when you think back to the Continental and creating that and the thrill of it and seeing the lines out the door? In a way, you're doing the same thing now as you were then. You're creating concepts and you're you're hoping for a hit. You're planning for a hit. You're assembling great teams. But I'm just wondering how you personally, how this whole uh, being a restaurant guy has impacted you and how you look at the world differently. I'll tell you one thing it's done that, that I don't like. I don't like feeling that it's easy Mm. and it feels easier for me. And I don't like that feeling because if you think things are too easy, then I don't think they'll come out right. Mm. So I I want it to be harder and tougher and have the same stress, Mm. the idea. Somewhere in the middle of doing all this, I started to think, oh, let's just open a Mexican restaurant. I can do it. So I don't like that feeling. I want it to be. But you're, but Steven, you're Steven Starr. You've had success. You've had, you know, when you're new and you're going to an investor and saying, Hey, I have this great idea and you're not proven. Of course it's hard when you, you've had Budokan for God's sake, <laughs> people are going to say, what do you, what, let me write the check. So how do you make it hard? I, by, by coming up with ideas that aren't cookie cutter. Hmm. That's why I, I hesitate. The people that work for me and bankers and all that stuff, they'll say, do Mexican. You got to do, because we have a few Mexican restaurants. And to me, it's just too easy. Mm. It's too easy to do a Mexican mm. restaurant. So I want to do something more difficult that, mm. like we're working on an Indian restaurant right now that, you know, in America, Indian food has the ability to take it off. And we just got back from London. I'm going to do something that's difficult to pull off in, in America, in New York, something's totally, like what Budokan did for the Asian or Chinese food. I kind of want to do that for Indian mm. here. So that's going to be hard because the food hasn't really been embraced by everybody. And what should it look like? And 
So that's going to be a difficult task. It's a big challenge. So that I, I feel worthy of that just to do another whatever. Mm. It's a little crazy. You're competing with yourself essentially, right? And, and trying to up yourself every time. Yes. I feel guilty if it's easy for me to do. So that's really interesting that the pandemic, I guess during the pandemic, you had all these ideas for restaurants, you were signing leases. Would you say you were more creative than ever because you had downtime or because of the anxiety of the moment? It really was the anxiety of the moment. It's like somebody that gains weight and you want to, instead of like going on a diet, you eat more. Right. Yes, it was the anxiety. Oh, well, Stephen, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate this time with you. You know, this this program to dine for, which usually happens at a restaurant as people explain their story of creativity, is a, a chance to give the the listener and the viewer a blueprint of, of success and some inspiration for their own journey. You know, I think you are particularly inspirational, not just for people who want to open a restaurant, but for artists and also entrepreneurs alike. What advice would you give to creatives as on their journey? You know, it's so, a lot of these things are push answers, so I don't like giving them. Like, the never give up, believe in your dream thing. I mean, that's fine. <laughs> it's it got to be more than that. What I, here's my advice, really, to, for everything is, and it's weird advice, is that whatever this dream is that you have, like, really try and rip it apart, dissect it, and come up with all the reasons why the dream is just a dream. It can't come true. And if it survives that exercise that you do to yourself, mm. then and go for it. Mm. I'm not saying you just do something because you think you can do it. Right. You got to like look at it and really believe that it can be done. And that's, uh, that's my advice. Steven Starr, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. I really appreciate it. Enjoy your day and thanks for your time. Very much. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to To Dine For The Podcast. For more information on the show, the guests, and the podcast, head to todinefortv.com. You can find us on Instagram at todinefortv and Facebook at todinefor with Kate Sullivan. Thanks to the sponsors of To Dine For The Podcast, American National, Spiritless, and Terlato Wine Group. Special thank you to producer and sound editor John Golmer. To the loyal followers of this program, cheers, stay hungry, and stay inspired. I'll see you back at the table soon. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.